Hello and welcome to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. I am your obsessively curious host, Nick Haradambas, and in this episode, Greg Smithies and I talk about the climate crisis, investing in curiosity, and much, much more. Greg is currently a partner at BMW's iVentures, where he invests in hardware, software, and sustainability applied to unsexy industries. His current investments include software motor company, Riven, GenXCom, and others. His prior investments have included Nutanix, which IPO'd, AppDynamics, which was acquired by Cisco, Industrial Safety Technologies, which was acquired by Tyco, and Neolane, which was acquired by Adobe. Before iVentures, Greg headed finance and operations for both The Boring Company and Neuralink simultaneously. He headed finance, sales, and business development for Versive, and was an early and late-stage investor at Battery Ventures, which is an $8 billion venture capital and private equity fund. Greg started his career at Citigroup, where for a fleeting moment, he oversaw all technology and development of the Swift network. He studied finance and operations and information management and computer science at the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. He is a native South African that grew up in Pretoria and in the Natal Midlands. He and his wife, Nikki, live in Oakland, California and are avid cat hikers. Greg, looking forward to talking to you today. Let's get straight into it and tell me, were you a curious child? I was a shockingly curious child. There wasn't like anything in the house that hadn't been attempted to be taken apart. Obviously, things never got put back together. <laughs> Pieces were kind of like strewn all over the place. I think if you ask my parents this question, they'd go back to their favorite example, which was I was used in a child safety video for how to keep <laughs> your children away from electrical items because I would just naturally try to like take apart the plug sockets in the wall. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So there pretty much wasn't anything around me that I wasn't trying to mess with or curious about or like trying to break. And I don't know how much of that was taught as opposed to just innate. And I mean, I have to ask for the internet's sake, is there a copy of that particular safety video floating around anywhere in the world? <laughs> I've actually <laughs> asked my mom for it before because I think it would be hilarious to see. It's probably on some VHS somewhere in the depths of the house somewhere, but I will find it at some point. That's great. So you grew up in South Africa and you've traveled a lot and you've met a lot of interesting people from all over the world. Is there a specific culture in your experience that sparks curiosity more than others? Like, do you feel like you benefited from growing up in South Africa in any way? I do think that I benefited from growing up in South Africa, but I think that each different culture kind of brings a different side to this which is South Africans typically I find are extremely studious and very hardworking. And if you take a South African and then put them into a culture that is more risk seeking as opposed to risk averse, then they tend to thrive a lot. And so I think South Africa's culture just for the way that the country has you know, come about isn't necessarily as risk seeking as other cultures, but we do have an incredible way of instilling a hard work ethic and the sort of innate curiosity in people early on. And so in my mind, the sort of real magic is taking the best parts of that South African culture and then putting it into a culture where failure and things like that are, are more or less of a sign of, of doing bad things like Silicon Valley. So I really found that once I'd moved to Silicon Valley, those sort of pieces clicked into place. And I was in a culture mm -hmm. that was accepting of curiosity and going outside of the beaten track, but with the same sort of innate work ethic that a South African upbringing really brought about. 
Yeah, and I think there are some good examples of that in Silicon Valley. I mean, obviously, aside from yourself, we've got Elon Musk and Rudolf Boerter and a slew of CEOs and builders who've moved to places like Silicon Valley and built incredible things that have changed the world. So yeah, I, I do tend to agree with that. Is there anyone in your life that you can think of that sparked this curiosity specifically? Or was it like a slow collection of things that made you curious? I think there were probably two people. The The number one was was my dad. You know, he's an electrical engineer. So he probably sparked the, the interest around the electronic stuff. But then also every weekend we were taking apart a Land Rover or fixing something on the house or things like that. That there's this, I think, curiosity tends to really sprout in people when you mix theoretical stuff with real practical things, because that's when you can get someone very excited about it. And so I found, especially when I started going to school later on in life and, and all the way through school, is because of this grounding and being able to do things in the real world, having you know messed with real physical items, having rebuilt car engines, all of those things, the future theory stuff that I covered in school and even in college, I was able to grasp those way better because I had some sort of tangible real world thing to tie them back to. So directly, my dad was the person driving all of the sort of tangible physical things that I was playing around with. And then I also had an incredibly good science teacher in high school who sort of saw my ability to do these things and then essentially allowed me to to make my own way in terms of the stuff that I was studying in high school, as opposed to just sticking to the static curriculum. So those two people together really sort of fostered it. And you mentioned failure just a few minutes ago, and it's quite an interesting time to talk about that because I do find that people in your formative years and how they treat you and your failures inform how you deal with your failure later on in life. So how did your dad and the science teacher cope and help instill in you a sense of failure being okay or not okay like how did it, how did it exist in your world failure i think there's a scientific concept that a negative result is still a result right so if you go and try something and you come out and nothing works like you start out with a hypothesis and no matter how hard you bash your head against the wall you can't get it to work that actually is a result right you've just figured out all of the ways that you can't do something and that's useful hmm. And so that sort of way of thinking of things that a failure is actually adding to your knowledge about the world probably comes directly out of my dad's, you know, super scientific mind and the work that I did in science with that science teacher. Whereas I think if you grow up in say, and, and I'm going to say some pejorative things about the liberal arts, but say, if you were an English student, for example, and your essay is bad, it is just bad right? And you, you haven't necessarily learned much about the world by failing at mm. writing an essay, right? Whereas I mm. think you do learn things about the world by failing at doing a scientific or technological endeavor. So it's, it's very tied to the specific domain that you're failing in. Absolutely. It's that concept that Edison found 10,000 ways not to build a light bulb until he found the right way to build one. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, very cool. And so when you think of the word innovation, I mean, this is a big one. How do you define it in your life to the startups you invest in and advise to? Like, what does innovation mean? Yeah, I can tell you to, to the previous point on, on how not to do something. I can tell you what it definitely isn't. Is, okay, let's um, start there. Yeah, we can start there. I, I see a lot of startups which are typically an interesting scientific piece of technology looking for a problem. Right. Okay. You know, someone at a at a university has come up with some new and I'll make this up like 
some new glue that isn't very sticky, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is the greatest non-sticky glue in the world. And they shop it around and try and get someone to be interested in this. But it's only until someone puts that glue on the back of a piece of paper and turns it into a sticky note that it's actually useful mm-hmm. to the world and it's actually truly innovative. So to me, it's tying together complex technology to solve a problem in an elegant way. That is innovation. But all too often, I see people who have just created that complex technology, and then they're looking for the problem that it actually solves. Really interesting. I mean, obviously, with me writing The Curiosity Catalyst as my second book, I've done a lot of research on the definitions of innovation around the world. And it's just so incredibly interesting how there isn't a single one. Everyone interprets it differently. So the, the part that fascinates me is the curiosity that leads up to that innovation, the obsessiveness around that innovation. And you're right, university is a great place for that to happen, right? Because people go, I like this problem, I'm obsessed with it, now I found a solution, it must be worth something. Yep, yep. Well, actually, I would push back on that a little bit because I think what academia tends to push you towards to, uh, isn't to say, I, I have this problem, let me find a solution. It's to say, my particular professor or the research group I'm working in has proven this point, like some random academic point, and I'm going to take some subset of that and push that to the nth degree, right? No, and so you end, up, you end up burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole on something, but never actually take the time to ask, like, is this important, right? And the mm-hmm. is this important question is not what academia is good at doing. Academia is very good at just pushing science forward, but yeah. um, you know places like Silicon Valley and where people are ruthlessly trying to build businesses around things is where they start to ask the question: Is this important? Then you run into a whole side problem of like, how do you define important? Because you know, optimizing ad click-throughs is probably not important, but it makes mm-hmm. a lot of money. Whereas, you know, saving the world from hunger is very important, but doesn't necessarily make a lot of money, right? So yeah. I think we as a, as a culture and society can do better at defining importance. But um, yeah, it's that marriage of technology plus a real important problem together. Absolutely. So I'm interested in the role that curiosity played in the founding of your career, because if anyone ever finds you on LinkedIn and that you push that LinkedIn link in your email, it is one of the longest experience bios I've ever seen. It kept asking me, (laughs) would you like to see five more experiences? Would you like to see five more experiences? Until I'd scrolled for 10 minutes. So it's interesting to me because you state that you invest in uh, unsexy industries, but actually those are all becoming sexy industries like AI, robotics, software, and sustainability. But I mean, when you were a kid, this is not what you wanted to go into. Hey, I want to go into AI and invest and build. So what yep. role did Curiosity play in leading you to where you are? Yeah, I would say my entire career has been curiosity allowing me to fail upwards into more interesting things. It's very elegantly <laughs> stated. <laughs> I've always just chased things that I found personally interesting and then had a little bit of the of the risk tolerance to jump ship even from things that felt very comfortable. Now obviously I was lucky in my life you know to to have the support structures around me to allow me to jump ship from good jobs into you know the abyss but the thing that was driving the uh, the willingness and the want to do it was 100% curiosity and so I've always found my like 
sort of superpower isn't necessarily ever actually i guarantee you i'm never the most intelligent person in the room but i'm generally the most broad read and broadly knowledgeable person in the room and so therefore mm -hmm. i can kind of like connect dots that other people don't see and that has been the primary driver on my career and now in my investing career is being able to sort of see the forest for the trees where most domain experts are typically stuck in the trees or stuck in the weeds even worse but being able to have that sort of very high level connect the dots tie something from you know poetry into science into economics and put all of those different things together is where my you know real power is as opposed to necessarily being good at any one thing yeah. And interestingly, after feeling much like you around these topics of uh, having a broad breadth of knowledge through researching the book, I finally found a term for this called expert yeah. generalists. And yeah, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, a T-shaped person, a jack of all trades and a master of one. And so you have a broad set of knowledge, but a deep understanding into a very specific area that is your linchpin. Mm. The expert generalists are the people that we all know and respect, like we've mentioned already, you know, Musk and Jobs, these people all read wide and deep. They don't just read deep. And they that's why startup founders are mostly as interesting as they are, because they're obsessed with a problem that they found through a breadth of reading and exactly yep. what you've just said. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that there's actually a term for it. I've, I've never heard it, but that 100% sums up exactly, exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. So when you are obsessed and curious with something, how do you know what curiosities to pursue more deeply and then turn into a potential career move or which ones are a pointless waste of time and to walk away from after six months of digging? Ooh, I don't think there's a, there's a very good answer for this. I typically use, well, actually, I'll, let me give you an a, a a good example of something I'm doing literally right now. So over the past four or five years, I've gotten somewhat obsessed with sustainability and uh, energy efficiency. If you look at the stats in the United States, about 60% of all energy, meaning gasoline power, coal, electrical energy, everything like 63% of it is just wasted. So that to me, I fundamentally hate inefficiency. That seemed to me like, oh, there's something there, right? We should be able to yeah. dig into this and it's a massive space. So that then took me down the path of finding out a whole bunch of stuff about sustainability and what are different ways that we solve different pieces of the energy efficiency puzzle, but then more broadly, energy efficiency obviously then ties into carbon and climate and all of those things. And then you ask yourself the question, well, we only have one planet. And if you're defining your market as the planet, all of a sudden you're playing in like a $26 trillion market right? Surely there must be massive opportunities here to save humanity plus make a whole whack of money. So the heuristic that I was using here is let's go and look for the largest market opportunities where you can feasibly actually make a profitable business that also happens to be good for the earth. But I got there over about two, maybe three years of sort of wandering in the deserts of, you know, starting out with sustainability people who really were doing it because they cared about saving the planet, but didn't necessarily get the profitability side and the economic incentives. Mm -hmm. And then talking to a whole bunch of people in like large manufacturing and petrochemical companies where, you know, they just want to make a whole bunch of money and don't necessarily care about the planet. And on this wandering in the desert path came to this conclusion that there actually are entire categories of businesses in multi-trillion dollar markets where you can tie those two things together, make money while saving the earth. 
but it was roughly a two-year process. And now on the back of this, we're going to be announcing in a few months here, probably four very large investments in and around this whole theme. And that incredible story actually covers two of the questions that were coming. And the first is, does your personal curiosity sometimes inform your business investments? And quite clearly, that's the case, right? Have you ever done the opposite, invested in something that you weren't personally, emotionally or mentally invested in, like something that was just good for the money? That's a random question. Yeah, I know. I actually don't don't think... Yeah, I don't think so. It's very difficult for me to get excited about something unless I can kind of pick it apart and and really understand it. So I would mm-hmm. say probably not. And then to the previous point, I think it's because of my sort of thought process here that at any point in time, I'm reading like four different books. I've got five or six podcasts I'm listening to every moment, like literally go go to get my coffee, like stand up from my desk to go and get mm-hmm. coffee, like 10 minutes total, I'm probably listening to one of those, like the book or the, or, or a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I find it's this constant barrage of different information from different points of view around roughly the general same topic is where the real magic happens. Because your, your brain kind of behind the scenes when you're sort of just sitting quietly or taking a moment or even doing something else like working out is actually connecting all of these dots. But you have to feed that machine. So you have to constantly be giving it lots and lots of input for it to then go and in your subconscious tie together. And then you do actually have these sort of like, holy crap moments where your brain has kind of put all of this stuff together, but you can't get there unless you're constantly feeding it stuff. And that's really interesting to me because someone who is quite famous for saying that he doesn't read is Gary Vaynerchuk. (laughs) How? How on earth does a guy like Gary Vee possibly have all of these interesting connected dots when he does not consume at the rate at which people like you and I do? I don't understand that. Yeah, so I think he uh, he's a different type of investor and uh, it's a style of investment that I think is extremely successful when it works. But essentially what he's doing is he's outsourcing the brain processing to his Rolodex, meaning he is incredibly well connected to tons and tons and tons of people. And what he's looking for isn't patterns of knowledge that he has in his head. He's looking for patterns amongst people he respects, right? And so he is incredibly well connected to a bunch of very, very leading people in you know whatever areas he's looking at. And when he gets kind of like similar signals from multiple people's he, uh, people he respects, that's mm-hmm. when he'll go and make a move on an investment. But essentially, the process that I'm doing in my mind, he's doing outside of his mind through his network. Network versus knowledge. Yeah. Really interesting. So something you touched on was that it took you about two years of percolating and researching and reading, which, to be blunt, is not the most efficient way if you're a business trying to do something. So curiosity is not efficient. It's actually quite the opposite, right? Businesses who are looking to gain quarterly results are actually impinging on their ability to go forward into the future. And the, the best example of this is Amazon. They reinvest profits to the detriment of quarterly dividends so that they can plan for the 50 year goal. How do businesses build out this curious culture? Do you think it's a matter of a clean break and getting rid of the quarterly reports? So like, what is the process that they have to go to to instill curiosity? Yeah, this is a big 
issue just with the way that we run our sort of modern capitalist society, right? I think there is a fundamental problem with quarterly results, and there's a fundamental problem with markets that trade on them. Now, that said, you could say, fine, let's blow it all up and go to something like the long-term stock exchange. But I think the real problem is that we've got so much inertia built around this that actually going and blowing it up is probably not going to happen. We let's be practical about this. And then actually, I think Amazon is a very good case study in how best to do this. You know, Jeff Bezos was IPOing into the long-term stock, stock exchange and therefore was able to do this. No, he was IPOing into exactly the same stock market and capitalist society that everybody else was. But what he did from day one was he just set expectations with investors. He just basically mm-hmm. said to them, hey, guys, this is my strategy. I'm not going to be profitable unless I feel like it, but we're going to overinvest versus everybody else. And you guys should value us on top line growth and sort of innovation type numbers. But if you look at and find they were IPOing also at a bad time around the the dot-com boom, uh, sorry, the dot-com bust. But even after that, as the market was recovering, it still took him a couple of years to really talk his investor base into believing the story. So I would say it's actually more of a long-term relationship with your investors and that more and more investors are going to change their story on this and their attitude on this through time as more and more companies start talking about these things. For example, what came out of the investors roundtable about, what was it, three or four months ago, where the investors roundtable, which is a large agglomeration of, uh, it's a couple of hundred of the world's most influential CEOs, all agreed that they're going to start prioritizing what's known as a triple bottom line, which is we're not just going to talk about profits and stockholder value. We're also going to talk about sustainability and we're going to talk about how we're treating our employees, for example. Now, a move like that is a massive move for these sorts of CEOs to take, but that's like one drop in the bucket. And slowly but surely, let me use other analogies, like these dominoes are going to fall to where the culture Mm -hmm understands this stuff more, but it's going to take multiple years and it behooves every company to actually be talking to their investors in this way because no single company can change the entire investor culture. Every company almost kind of has to band together in this messaging to change the way that people think about companies. That or you need a new influx of generational change from new founders. And I'm not sure if you've read about it, but have you heard of the Zebra startup movement? No, what's that? It's it's the antithesis of the unicorns, right? The idea is that zebra startups <laughs> are actually both black and white. They are profitable and sustainable. They oh, are like slow this. growing. They are real, investable, but don't take investment for growth's sake. They try not to damage society that they work in and with. And that applies to staff as well as the world around them. And it, yeah, if you Google it, there is a whole bunch of writing around it. It was meant to be in a conference, but the coronavirus shut that yeah. down for the end of March. But there is this groundswell of of startup founders who are rebuffing investments because the SoftBank model is destructive. Uh, giving yep. founders more money than they need and more money than their idea possibly deserves is actually destructive to them and their idea and the world around them. So zebras are a response to this, that slow, slow building founders are the future potentially. So I 100% agree with that. SoftBank stuff, I mean, we've watched a couple of our portfolio companies, I'm not going to say die from indigestion, but get close to uh, dying from indigestion because of too much money from SoftBank. Mm -hmm. But that SoftBank was just indicative of a broader problem across the market at late stage funding. But yes, I 100% agree with this, uh, this idea. You should be building... 
the word sustainable, I think people just tie up with green and good for the planet. But uh, inherent in the word sustainable is your business has to make sense, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it actually has to be able to stand on its own two feet and and run itself and in multiple levels, right? Like looking after your employees, making sure you aren't essentially working people to the bone in order to make a profit or just burning VC money in order to grow. Like the term sustainable really means that you should be good in all of these things. And this takes us very lightly into systems theory that one part of this new system of businesses that we're trying to build is quote unquote sustainability for one, the climate and two, the business itself, but leads deeply into why I'm putting this book together and why we're talking, because curiosity is one of the ways that you defend against your business not being sustainable. And I mean sustainable here in the way of profitably sustainable, that you stay in front of the trends, that you manage to keep yourself as a learning organization, what Peter Senge would call a learning organization. And so mm. I think you're, you're right. Absolutely. These are the, the ways that we need to start building. Yeah, this this actually reminds me of of a an adage I've been trying to make a thing. It's kind of like you're trying to make fetch. Let's happen. do it. Um, let's do it. Yeah. So so if your company has an innovation division, you are not innovative by definition, because that means that you've taken innovation and you've put it off to the side and you've said <laughs> like these ten people over here are going to be the innovative people and all the rest of us are just going to do our day jobs, right? And, and it's actually, you need to build the stuff into your culture, every division, every part of the company, like head to tail. And this whole trend over the last, I don't know, probably like 10-ish years of setting up innovation groups and all of that stuff is, if anything, it's lip service, one, it's completely a waste of time, two, and it's probably actually detrimental to the rest of the organization because you get to check the, oh, we're innovative box when you really aren't. Absolutely. The phrase that I've discovered for this is called innovation theater. It is, yep. Yep. It is easier for businesses to put on a show than to actually core and systemically integrate curiosity and innovation into their teams. Also, more often than not, involves a lot of churning of staff because the team you hired to maintain your billion dollar business is not the same team who can build you another billion dollar business. And it's hard sometimes to get rid of those people. Yeah, 100% agree. So tell me, part of your insanely interesting career is you knew this was going to come up uh, the time you spent at The Boring Company. And I'm interested to know if working at a place like The Boring Company is more curious and innovative than others that you've worked at or just has that aura about it. I would say it is extremely curious and innovative, but in a way you're probably not expecting, which is with extreme, extreme fences around where that curiosity can go, right? Like constraints oh, are what make innovation and true curiosity sort of really work. And so think of it as a company who just wants to be innovative might be a Google who set up, you know, what was it called? 20% time that just allows mm -hmm. their engineers one day a week to just do blue sky thinking and do just crazy stuff, right? It turns out that out of that, out of actual 20% time, Google, I think, only got one real product that lasted, and that was Gmail. There's nothing else. Every, they've, they've created a lot of things, but then had to shut them all down because they turned out not to be real. Whereas what the Elon Musk organizations tend to do instead is say, we have one mission, 
and one extremely focused thing that we need to do. And that in the case of the boring company is dig tunnels more cheaply than any other company on the planet, right? In the case of SpaceX, it's get stuff into space more cheaply than anybody else on the planet, right? And that is your one mission. And then inside that mission, right, like you might be the guy doing the concrete or maybe you're the guy doing the doing the tunnel boring machine, whatever your little like playground is, you can be as innovative and as crazy and as off the wall as you want, but it has to be towards that one specific mission and goal. And I've got a, a good example here, and I think Elon has spoken about this publicly, and, and so I can talk about it. But the tunnel liners, think of this as the concrete that goes into the tunnel of the boring company tunnels. There are only two companies in the world that make commercial public transport grade tunnel liners. And one serves China and the other serves effectively the rest of the world. And so they're pretty much monopolies. So when we went to those companies to get bids on building the tunnel liners, they quoted us some crazy numbers, you know, in the thousands of dollars per linear foot sort of range, because they're effectively monopolies. Whereas what the boring company did instead was say, well, what's actually structurally difficult about this, went and researched all of the requirements, all of the regulations around them, and figured out exactly how to build their own tunnel liners. And now they're the only tunneling company in the world that builds their own tunnel liners because they were willing to just put in the, you know, it took maybe four or five months of work and research to figure out how to do it and all the regulations you have to meet and how to build a good testing group and all of that stuff. But for the cost of, you know, probably about like five or six heads and six months of time, the boring company can now make their own tunnel liners at $40 a linear foot as opposed to multiple thousands of dollars per linear foot. And they're the only people in the world who to put in that effort, right? So it's that sort of think outside the box, like, oh, everybody else just buys from these people. So let's go and buy from these people. No, why should we buy from those people, right? That sort of like think outside the box thinking happens there because you're allowed to, but you're only allowed to as long as it's within the constraints of what your particular mission happens to be. Yeah, the interesting thing about the constraints that I've kind of pinned together is Elon Musk's obsession with first principles. And that's pretty much what you've just spoken about is why would we go get it from someone else when we understand how to make it ourselves? Let's just do that. And how deeply can we go down that rabbit hole? Okay, that's really interesting. That is definitely not how I expected them to be innovative. Very cool. In your career, do you hire or invest specifically off the back of curiosity? And if so, how? And if not, that's cool. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'll go to some of my like operating experience here where I've actually been yeah. managing people because the life of a, v- of a VC of more like a mercenary. When I've been uh, running teams, this was probably the number one thing that I had in all of my quarterly reviews, my weekly meetings with everybody was essentially like, what are you doing to make yourself better at your job? Because yes, we're paying you technically to do your job, but I would way prefer you to like automate your job and go and do something more interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. That uh, at the end of the day is probably even better for the company. And so typically I would have people have very strong personal goals around acquiring new skills. Now, this is very different depending on what the role happens to be. But like if you're managing accountants, it was making sure that they're going out and getting whatever the next exams might be for, for accountancy, but also making sure that they're allowed to go and, you know, we'll pay for you to get Excel training, you know, things like that. But It's not so much that you want to set some crazy large goal that they have to go and achieve to make them, you know, fundamentally a better employee. It's more this culture of 
hey, you want to make yourself slightly better, like incrementally better, 2% better, 5% better, we will 100% back you to do that. And when you prove that to employees enough that you're willing to, uh, to back them when they want to like go out on the limb a little bit, the length that they're willing to go out on that limb and the things that they sort of dream of doing just get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. But you've got to start with that first step of, yes, we will absolutely support you in that Excel training or getting some new videos to tell you how to configure the network switches, right? You've got to start with those like baby steps and then build a culture around it. Mm. So lifelong learning has become this really interesting trend and it's it's kind of what you're talking about now just in a professional setting. And I love the idea that we can now with the advent of the iPhone and cheap internet learn anything forever. When you and I left university, it was like, oh, here's your degree. Good luck. Now go get a career. See you in 50 years. Yeah, you're um, done. So yeah, you're done. Like, thank you. You're an accountant. You'll always be that. And now let's move on. How do you engage in your learning processes in your personal life? Like what are the, the things you can think that you do that keep you on top form? I think it goes back to just the voracious reading and the voracious, like getting information in. I'm not a big networker. I actually personally hate people which is weird for a VC. So I spend all of my time just like going deep on things, going wide on things. So I'll kind of more do a little bit of a TikTok, which is like spend a couple of months going super broad, read completely random books, you know, from like self-help books to at the moment I'm reading something called Energy and Civilization. It's literally a history of like how many kilojoules there are in a pound of like horse poop in order to power... <laughs> 17th century society right like that that level of just like super random stuff so on one end of the spectrum you'll you'll do a couple of months of like super broad read random things and then out of that you find some some little thread to pull on that's interesting and then you spend a couple of months digging deep on that sort of thing so that's the way that i keep it going but that's also like i'm obsessed with this stuff day in and day out so the line between my personal life and my business life there almost isn't a line so it's a little bit difficult for me to talk about, you know, stuff from my personal life tying into my business life because it's very close to the same. same thing. Yeah. For our listeners, I'm sure that some of them have the same anxieties that I have when I, for example, watch one extra episode of Netflix, I feel <laughs> like I should be doing something more constructive with my time. So very practically, how much TV do you watch, for example? How often do you go out? Or are you literally committed to reading and researching constantly? Like that's what it takes? No, no. I really think you can actually have a very rewarding, fulfilling life and have good work-life balance because the way that I use this downtime is for that the time for your brain to just synthesize all of these things behind the scenes. You literally cannot work all the time because your brain will never see the bigger picture. You actually need to give your brain some downtime, like go and work out, watch some TV, watch a movie, hell, go get drunk, right? Like your brain needs to actually synthesize these things and, and create like literally on a uh, neurological basis has to build new linkages in your brain between things. So the downtime is frankly as important as the time that you're working. And what I find a lot, of, especially in the culture and the startup culture of, you know, work, 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 go, 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 faster, 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 is people don't spend anywhere near as much time just resting, let alone sleeping, right? And it just makes them all around worse at everything and makes their likelihood of coming up with the next big, interesting, truly groundbreaking idea, uh, like massively smaller. 
because your brain needs the downtime. So yeah, I watch a lot of TV. I go out, I drink, like, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. So uh, tertiary education is an interesting one. I personally am not of the belief that it's going to exist in the next 20 or 30 years in its current form. So I'm curious about how you feel tertiary education institutions like Oxford or Stanford or MIT promote curiosity. And specifically, I'm thinking about that Steve Jobs story that he attended all these classes without being enrolled anywhere, just to satisfy his curiosity. So what's your view on, like, for example, founders who have gone down the tertiary education route and those who haven't and your own opinion on it? I would say that the standard MBA is not useful at all. That if we roll forward to what you would think like a good tertiary education should be, it should be something that effectively just teaches you to dodge and weave in a world that will become more dodgy and weavy. And by that, I mean that your iteration cycles on technologies are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So like to go from from fire to the wheel took, you know, roughly like 7,000 years to go from like the wheel to the steam train took, you know, like 2000 years and to go from the steam train to the plane took like a hundred years and to go from the plane to space took 50 years. Right. So I think if you roll that forward, the number one skill that anybody can have is just the ability to dodge and weave with an ever changing world. Right. And that, most tertiary education as it's created now, especially MBA style business education, is not that. The ability, like teaching people how to learn and how to change the way that they see the world and how to adapt is the key skill. And most tertiary education doesn't doesn't provide that. Great. So, Greg, tell me, what are you most curious about right now? Yeah, we actually went through it already. I'm I'm really okay, digging cool. in on how do we save the planet and make a whole bunch of money at the same time. And I think I've got some some good good opportunities. We're going to capture some carbon and create gasoline amongst other chemicals and things that are valuable to the world. But the key is is being able to do the stuff at scale profitably, and that's what I'm searching for at the moment. Great. And is that the same thing that keeps you up at night? Well, it's the flip side of that. It's what happens to all of us if we don't do it, right? Uh, I am very worried personally about about climate change and, and all of these things. I mean, I live in California. You know, in Cape Town, you have the wildfires as well. We've seen what's happening in yeah. Australia. like, And we're just on the leading edge of this stuff. It's, it's only going to get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen this sort of firsthand uh, here every summer. Yeah. So in closing, tell my audience where they can find you. If there's anything you want to promote to them or a newsletter or anything of the kind, let them know. Otherwise, thank you for having joined me on the podcast. Yeah, I think the only thing, as you said, is my LinkedIn. I'm I'm Greg Smithies on LinkedIn. I think there's only one of me. And I am looking for any interesting technologies that can save the planet at scale whilst making a whole bunch of money and looking to invest in them rapidly because we're running out of time. Amazing. Greg, thank you for your time. It is never dull speaking with you and I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. You can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. 
stay curious. Until next time.